Thank you for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast from the University of Nottingham, recorded at Dream QMC. In this episode, we will be discussing asthma. As ever, all information mentioned within this podcast is correct at the time of recording. Any and all guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. Hello, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the teaching fellows in emergency medicine. My name's Charlie. I'm one of the teaching fellows in medicine and critical illness. I also work on medical high dependency. I'm uh, Dom. I'm one of the AMPs working in ED. I also um, teach one of the teaching fellows and the critical illness attachment in ED. Okay. So in this episode we're going to be uh, discussing um, asthma and uh, the uh, acute uh, management of presentations of asthma. Uh, so I suppose before we go any further, Charlie, um, what is asthma? So asthma is a, a, an inflammatory or hypersensitivity disease of the airways. Um, you get this sort of uh, intermittent or paroxysmal um, and also reversible obstruction in the airways. Um, generally you see it, you get this bronchospasm which clinically gives you a wheeze um, and often there's excess sputum production as well. Okay, so um, I think, Dom, I think most days at work in A&E, one of us, we're going to be seeing at least one patient with shortness of breath, um, uh, very often with a history of, of asthma. Um, so what are the features of an exacerbation of asthma uh, that you look for and, and what might cause an exacerbation of asthma? So when we're thinking about exacerbations, obviously uh, asthmatic patients uh, know and can control their own condition. They know it very well. Mm. Um, and often we see them when they're feeling unwell and part of their um, presentation might be that they're having an increased shortness of breath that they're finding it difficult to control with their inhaler. That might be associated with uh, a feeling of tightness across the chest. Um, they uh, very often have a cough. Sometimes um, that's going to be uh, with the production of sputum, um, but more often, uh, and, and one of the more common features is having a, a, a wheeze. Um, some of the triggers may be that um, it's seasonal. Um, it may be the fact that um, the environment that they're in, um, you know, sometimes uh, the, the younger asthmatic on a night out in a in a club, that's often uh, a, a common one that we have overnight, um, particularly at the weekends. Uh, it might be occupational in relation to, to smoking as well um, and whether there's an underlying infection um, and part of the uh, workup is to, to decide whether it's a an infective exacerbation or, or due to some other reason as well. Mm-hmm. well. A common one I often find is the um, I went round to my friend's house and didn't realise they had a cat and uh, that seems to be a very uh, common cause as well. Um, okay so um, one of the things uh, Charlie I find is um, sometimes patients say they have asthma when really it's, it's another uh, respiratory condition um, particularly COPD sometimes patients get those two uh, mixed up. Um, so from the history and investigation point of view, how might you be able to discern between what, what is asthma and, and what might not be asthma, might be COPD? Mm. Generally speaking, I mean COPD is a disease of later life. Um, it's something that occurs almost exclusively with, with a significant smoking history um, and, and therefore the patients with COPD will have smoked heavily for a number of years. Um, and although there are features similar with asthma, 
you can uh, sort of diagnose it more by the, the time of presentation and the background there. Um, generally speaking, you will see things different on x-ray, so you'll see the hyper-expanded chest, which you may see with asthma, but again occurs later um, with, with a diagnosis of COPD. Okay, so it's, you know, that asthma history much later in life, uh, possibly within the history of atopy as well, other associated features like that going involved. Yeah, so so in asthma you'd see the eczema, the hay fever, maybe even sort of uh, lactose intolerance. Uh, uh, from a younger age you start with the sort of uh, diurnal symptoms with your asthma when you're younger, maybe mm. even sort of exercise-induced symptoms, uh, whereas, as, as we said, sort of COPD occurs much later. Um, and to some extent doesn't have the same degree of reversibility either. Mm. Okay. So, uh, Dom, you're in A&E. Um, you've just clicked on a patient and um, the nurse has triaged them as a, as a query asthma exacerbation. So you, you're going to see the patient now. What sort of things are going through your head uh, that you're going to need to cover when you're clerking that patient? I think ultimately we need to identify um, level of severity, which mm. I know we're going to kind of come on to a, a bit later. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the key indicators on how, how well controlled that, that is, or, or not, as may be the case, is whether they've had previous admissions to hospital um, with their asthma or their breathing problem. Um, and on admission, whether they uh, went to a high level of care, so certainly kind of HTU, ITU admissions are, are key, mm. um, and that will then give you the ability to identify how well controlled or, or what the potential is for, for deterioration, mm. um, and what the potential is for the, the reversibility and how quickly you may be able to, to get on top of that, that condition. Um, so that's that's um, one of the, the kind of the early questions that I might want to, to get just in case um, things deteriorate while you're with that patient. Um, but how they go about their, their normal daily activities, how much their symptoms are interfering with that, mm. how often they're kind of needing to take their inhaler compared to an, a normal day when they're when they're well, whether it's interfering with sleep. Um, if they're able to kind of lay in their kind of normal flatter position, needing to be more propped up. Um, if they're taking their, their, their medications as they should be, mm. uh, and indeed um, often is the case with uh, respiratory conditions, there's the rescue medicines mm. um, that they, uh, more of the poorly patients or more of the recurrent infective or exacerbative patients have um, they'll have a supply at home so have they started on those rescue medications what impact do they normally see from that um, how many days are they into those sorts of uh, medicines um, if they have an idea of their normal peak flow because obviously what we want to do is uh, as Charlie's already said is to measure the reversibility mm. and we want to ensure that we're having an impact on their um, condition and we're seeing an improvement. So if we've got a benchmark to go from, and we know um, when they're well, what a normal peak flow is for them, mm. um, then we can work towards trying to achieve that. And mm. also we can figure out how far away they are from that, so potentially how well they are um, with regards to their, to their normal level of activity and, and peak flow. And if we haven't got a normal, they don't know their normal peak flow, then there is a, there are ways of um, getting a predictive value of what they should be able to achieve. Um, mm. And that's uh, 
you know, questions with regards to, to identifying that is helpful. Um, and then just your, your kind of your general uh, presentation questions for, for shortness of breath, mm. associated symptoms, um, if you can identify whether there's a, an infective element to, to this. Mm. And also need to be careful with regards to just um, just putting that down their exacerbation down to their asthma. Um, initially in the uh, undifferentiated A&E patient, you just need to be considering some of the more complex um, or more um, urgent conditions that can be uh, present as shortness of breath and, and just not um, always going immediately down the asthma route mm-hmm. initially, having mm-hmm. that, that, that wider consideration. So the, the, the questioning um, should kind of start a bit more more broad, considering mm. all of the, the shortness of breath presentations, mm. uh, and then making sure that you're happy that it's down to their to their asthma, and then hopefully trying to figure out the the cause of that um, exacerbation and, and why they've ended up in A&E. Mm. Excellent. I suppose Charlie, as well as some as a registrar who works on high level of care wards, I suppose that. that background whether a high level of care has ever been involved in the patient's history before is very key for, from your point of view as well if you're getting a phone call from A&E saying we have this patient. Yeah absolutely I think uh, it's it, not only if they've had uh, intensive care admissions but it's the number of hospitalizations. Mm-hmm. it's a measure really of how brittle their asthma is um, and a measure of how severe, severe it has been in the past whether it's been life-threatening or even near fatal and it it just sort of lowers your threshold Mm. for concern really so you may have reassuring numbers but I think we always need to recognize that asthmatic patients generally speaking are younger patients who can compensate uh, reasonably well up until a point Mm. they then tire and get very sick very quickly Um, and there's no room to mess around really with these patients okay um, so Dom sort of alluded there that we, we need to um, you know keep in mind um, other uh, causes of shortness of breath. You know, shortness of breath is an incredibly um, common presentation. Um, so Charlie, what what other things do you need to keep in your mind about shortness of breath other than asthma when you when you're clerking a patient? I think as Dom's rightly said, you have to consider the more serious or sinister diagnoses first. So um, making sure that you're asking your questions to rule out PEs. Um, so pleuritic type chest pains, any risk factors that are there, sort of active malignancy, long haul flights, immobility, uh, oral contraceptive pill in the younger younger females. Um, other cause of shortness of breath, uh, sort of less sinister as well, may even just be simple anxiety and you may get your associated features of sort of tingling lips, tingling fingers, mm-hmm. some dizziness, lightheadedness when people are actually hyperventilating. You can follow that up with investigations and you'll see sort of respiratory alkalosis on gases, which uh, I mean, you may see early on in asthma, uh, but uh, I mean, y- you start to tease out based on your sort of clinical questioning. Um, there are obviously patients that will come with inhalers even who mm. the asthma diagnosis isn't even clear cut either. And I mm. think it's important to keep your differentials broad uh, even when patients say they have asthma, so it's considering the patients who actually have a, a normal uh, uh, peak flow when they're saying they're symptomatic, or even normal examination when they're mm. symptomatic. Mm. Thinking about the patients who have this sort of chronic productive cough in the absence of wheeze, 
I think he may be more about bronchiectasis and other causes of chest symptoms. Um, we've already talked a bit about the smoking history, which may suggest or point towards the diagnosis of COPD rather than asthma. Um, and then not to forget, obviously, cardiac histories that may present with a cardiac wheeze. Mm. Uh, so again, looking at the investigations that you do, your chest x-rays, pulmonary edema, mm. uh, presenting with a cardiac wheeze. Um, so it's just keeping your differentials mm. broad and not pigeonholing patients as soon as they mm. walk through the door, even if they've got a label of asthma mm. and even the medications to go along with that. Yeah, and other th things like um, orthopnea or you know the um, tibial edema, sacral edema might point towards a, a CCF picture. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Tom. So you, you've um, you've taken um, your history from the patient. Uh, now on to sort of thinking about um, your examinations, investigations. Uh, what are you going to do? What are you looking for? So within the ED, I think we've got quite a standardised approach, and and certainly the. Um, the involvement of our initial assessment tools that, that set out uh, a standardised approach and investigation to them, um, not exclusively um, just including respiratory rate and SATs, um, but obviously they are they are key and they're going to help identify this as as a as a, as a respiratory patient, primary respiratory patient. I'll certainly give you that that um, that little clue. Um, so it should include a, a full uh, respiratory examination, um, not just reliant on uh, kind of uh, vital signs. Mm -hmm. um, and and within that, obviously, whenever you're doing an examination, you're wanting to have an expectation of what you're going to find. So in the asthmatic patient, you're expecting to find um, a wheeze when you're listening to their to their chest on auscultation. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes that's audible as soon as you walk into the room yes. you don't need your stethoscope to, to, to prove that um, and, and that's, uh, that's often uh, a key to how unwell they are um, but one of the things that you shouldn't underestimate is that you know if you, if you haven't got that wheeze then what else is going off um, and, and one of the more worrying signs is if actually you're you're struggling to hear any breath sounds um, mm -hmm. throughout. So <coughs> the, the silent chest as a finding mm. is uh, is very uh, very worrying, um, and would escalate your urgency um, in dealing with your patient. Mm. How quickly you're going to try and do things. Um, if you've got the ability and the patient's got the ability to do a peak flow, um, then then that should be done. Hopefully, prior to any treatment, as again trying to measure their response to that, mm. um, we tend to lead towards um, a, a, a venous blood gas as opposed to an arterial blood gas, just to give you that that, that quick look. Um, and again, whenever you perform an investigation, what you're expecting to see. Mm. Certainly, we look at um, look at the CO two level. Mm. Uh, and actually, again, one of the more worrying signs is if you've got a normal or, or, or raised mm. CO2 in your unwell asthmatic, then again, you're, you're particularly worried because your patient is um, physically hyperventilating in you and certainly has a history of hyperventilation. Mm. So what you should be seeing in your asthmatic patient is a low CO2, blowing that off, trying to compensate. Um, so if that's not the case, then it might be indicating that your, your patient is unwell tiring mm. yeah a, ra a raised pco2 is, is near fatal even mm. so it's it's one not to miss early on mm. 
and we'll cover that in a bit more detail when we, when we go through the severity um, scale of asthma. So your workup might, might be looking for that underlying cause, looking mm. for your inflammatory markers, mm. chest x-ray, mm. is the focal consolidation there, um, you know, hyper-expanded chest maybe if you're talking about the older asthmatic patient, but um, just a, a, a focused um, but broad mm. investigation to the, the respiratory presentation. Sure thing. And we mentioned peak flow a few times now, uh, Charlie, so I suppose it's a good opportunity to say, cover quickly, uh, what is a peak flow and, and, and why is it important in, in the case of asthma? Mm, so peak flow is actually a very uh, simple and easy test to do and actually it's it's um, extremely useful in the diagnosis of asthma early on, mm. so done in the community, facilitated by the GP. Um, it's a, a, a simple piece of equipment that patients can take home and they keep what we call a peak flow diary, so they will do uh, serial peak flows throughout the day, uh, sort of early morning and into the evening as well, hopefully to see that diagnostic diurnal variation in mm. um, peak flow. So actually what you're measuring um, in milliliters per minute uh, is the maximum speed of expiration. Um, there are graphs, as Don mentioned earlier, which uh, identify the expected best or norm for that patient based on gender and age. Mm -hmm. um, and as, as you say, what you see in asthmatics is a reduction in peak flow, uh, particularly in the evening. Um, so again, aiding you in diagnosis. Um, what you will see is patients will have a personal best and then what we can use, as, as Don's alluded to, in, in IAU, in the assessment areas, in ED, um, is that percentage reduction from mm. the personal best or mm. in the case maybe where it's undiagnosed, the normal value mm. uh, expected for that patient to, as a marker of severity in these patients when they're unwell. So I suppose now it's it's time to sort of cover um, the the degrees of severity of asthma. Uh, so um, today's an auspicious day. The uh, British uh, Thoracic Society and the Scottish Intercollegiate uh, Guideline uh, Group have brought out a joint uh, guidance today on the management of of asthma. Uh, we'll, we'll put a link up uh, to those guidelines on the Twitter and Facebook pages. Um, we've got it here in front of us. So, uh, Charlie and Don, would you like to, to take us through them, please? Uh, so, I think initially the, the, the thing to identify is that they're categorised into um, moderate acute asthma, um, acute severe asthma, life-threatening asthma and near-fatal asthma. Um, with uh, varying degrees of percentage change for peak flow um, and the impact of symptoms in there. So I think I'll uh, start off with a moderate acute asthma. Um, so you find that obviously patients, asthmatic patients, know their own symptoms and they might be just complaining of the fact that these have become um, increased in, in their severity and having a bit of a wider impact just from a general perspective. Um, and they'll be achieving 50% uh, to 75% of their best or predicted peak flow. Um, and they won't have any of the uh, features of the acute severe asthma, um, which are also detailed in the, in the table, um, which is particularly uh, physiologically mediated to a heart rate of um, equal to or greater than 110 beats per minute. Our respiratory rate uh, equal or greater than uh, 25 per minute 
Yeah, and the inability to complete sentences in one breath. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly in this category of patients, you're not always going to get an, an, an accurate peak flow mm-hmm. um, because of, obviously if they are uh, unable to complete a, a sentence in one breath, mm-hmm. then asking them to, to get a best of three peak flow is... Um, a bit not, cruel. Yeah, not necessarily your, your first choice of... Uh, <laughs> have indicated that you're going to go on, you're going to be worried on their clinical presentation rather than reliant on, on yeah. their, a, a true um, recording of a, of a peak flow. But nonetheless, the, the peak flow in this category of patient, which is the acute severe asthma, is uh, 33 to 50% of best or predicted. So then considering your more life-threatening presentations, um, we can break that down into to what we see clinically. Um, and other measurements that you may record in these uh, acutely unwell patients. So you may find that you have any of those features of severe asthma plus an altered conscious level, so drowsiness, GCS less than 15. Um, You may be able to visibly see your patients tiring, becoming exhausted. Um, They have poor respiratory effort at this stage as well, so they're, they're physically unable to move air. And then, in terms of your signs, you'll you'll correlate that with a silent chest, or seeing them visibly cyanosed. Um, more concerningly, you may get an arrhythmia associated with that tachycardia, um, or even hypotension. So they are now hemodynamically unstable um, and sort of life-threateningly unwell. Um, just going on from uh, clinical signs to measurements. Uh, I mean getting a peak flow in these sorts of patients is going to be very difficult mm. they will be achieving less than a third of their best or predicted uh, peak flow less than 33% and you will start to see that hypoxia with the cyanosis um, as I say they're not shifting air they're not oxygenating you will see SAPs less than 92% or if you do do an arterial gas which I think would be very important in the ones that are starting to fit in this life-threatening category mm. you will see a, a PaO2 of less than 8 and along with that, if you're starting to get a normal PaCO2, a normal conduct, reading on those arterial gases, um, that patient is certainly starting to try tire. They are no mm. longer hyperventilating and mm. clearing that CO2 in a, in a, f- a physiologically appropriate way. Mm. You've got that demonstration biochemically that this patient is tiring, mm. becoming exhausted, and actually uh, in a life-threatening condition. Okay. Thinking about the near fatal, then, as I already mentioned, uh, that PCO2 will go even even higher. You'll start to get a raised PCO2, um, which you should never see in an asthmatic. Um, and those patients presenting with near fatal signs need to be in intensive care and most likely intubated and ventilated. These patients should never end up on high dependency. We are not a holding point um, before they need intensive care, and these patients will arrest with that near fatal presentation okay as opposed to patients with COPD who may come to HDU yeah so I mean I think what we didn't mention earlier is what you see on blood gases in COPD patients and they may have a chronically raised CO2 Mm. and that actually can be normal for Mm. um, COPD patients with a raised bicarbonate as well a very stark difference Mm. um, and something to recognize early on um, and as we said in history you may get that difference uh, between asthma and COPD their treatment therapy may be slightly different their type mm. of presentation and diagnosis is different um, so COPD patients may have a uh, raised CO2 they may have a raised bicarb and they may actually have a normal pH with that mm. at the stage where they decompensate and their pH 
falls, mm. most likely with a, a rise in their CO2 as well, what we call type 2 respiratory failure, they are candidates for non-invasive ventilation on high dependency. Okay. Um, so as well as keeping in mind, obviously, the, the, the increasing severity of asthma, um, Charlie, is, um, are there any complications uh, that, that may arise from, from our patient that we need to also keep an eye out for? Mm. Dom's very rightly alluded to the idea of it being an infective exacerbation mm. um, and you may even identify a mnemonic process on chest x-ray so it's looking out for any focal consolidation um, and certainly I mean community acquired pneumonias uh, still occur in mm. asthmatics um, and will be treated uh, alongside hospital guidelines for community acquired pneumonias what you probably will need to include then is, is the steroid and nebulizer treatment in your asthmatics as well. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just consider your uh, clinical assessment, focal creps, and then uh, what you may see on a chest x-ray, giving you a diagnosis of pneumonia. Um, another thing asthmatics are uh, slightly more prone to than you, uh, general public and new pneumothoraces. So it's again looking at the chest x-rays and, and not missing the pneumothorax in the patient presenting with shortness of breath. Yeah. Uh, so there should never be a silent chest if it no. could be you know, severe asthma or, uh, um, or pneumothorax. Uh, okay then Dom, so um, you, we've gone through the, uh, the uh, severity, uh, the different severities of asthma. Um, so shall we now just talk a bit about the, the management of our patients? So um, starting from the, the very beginning going forward. Um, so something I, I usually, the, the, the back-to-back salbutamol and ipratropium nebs uh, yeah. as, as my first go-to. Yeah, I think if you, you'll, you'll probably find that if the, if the patients decided that that went well and felt mm. the need to call an ambulance, um, then that's a first-line mm. um, treatment from the ambulance crews is, is certainly um, salbutamol, ipratropium, and whether you're going to be giving 2.5 milligram salbutamol and you certainly tend to get less of the associated side effects and if you're going to be giving back to back over a, a more prolonged period of time um, then you often see the more you know the increased heart rate the the, the tremors um, that can also induce kind of a more of a prolonged hyperventilation as well as, uh, as the medication still in your system um, but if you've got nothing else and you, you, you can can go with a five five milligram salbutamol you can still give that back to back um, you just expect m maybe more of a, a significant show mm. of, a, of those side effects. Mm. Um, but yeah, y y we're talking about kind of parallel assessment. <coughs> you don't want to be doing this in isolation, so you don't want to yeah. wait for your history, wait for your peak flow yeah. before you're giving your yeah. treatment. Absolutely. You know, if your, your patient's not in front of you, you know, able to kind of talk to you in those full sentences yeah. and you've audible wheeze as soon as you're walking in, uh, into the cubicle, then, um, then you need to be getting nebulized yeah. therapy in there thinking about early steroid treatment mm. um, and and then um, kind of your further assessment after that time it doesn't mm. always need to go in in that uh, structured format that yeah. um, is often taught uh, the, historically the, the difference between uh, medical school and real life that uh, it's, it's best to actually make our patient be able to breathe and tell us a history first before we uh, wait for them to collapse and then yeah. figure it out afterwards <laughs> Um, so we've um, we started our, uh, our nebulizers. We've given some steroids, either IV or, or, or oral. Our patient's still struggling. Uh, we want our patient in a monitored environment. You know, um, they're there. Uh, they're getting senior input as well. Charlie, what's our what's our next step then in in terms of treatment? Yeah. So I think I mean, if you're talking initially about 
being in an A&E environment mm. initially, um, you're going to stabilise and optimise that patient the most possible where you are. So you've got high flow oxygen as you need it, um, your back-to-back nebulizers, as you mentioned, either oral or IV steroids if they're unable to swallow, plus or minus antibiotics if you think there's an, a, an exacerbation, an infective component here. Um, depending on, as we talked about, the severity, the, your sort of severity assessment, you may even get your anaesthetic team down there mm. um, early on to consider intubation in the department. Um, if necessary and certainly if you've got any of those life-threatening or near-fatal uh, markers then that's something you should be considering early on. Mm. Um, needless to say anyone who's intubated and ventilated needs to go to intensive care mm-hmm. um, and as I mentioned before I think we need to have a low threshold for early intensive care mm. uh, admission mm. rather than sort of sitting these patients either on a ward or um, high dependency if there is that risk of them going off and, and t- as we talked about early on um, the idea of what's happened in the past the, the brittle nature of their asthma mm. if they're likely to need that intensive care admission now NUH obviously is quite unique in this fact that we have two sites and respiratory is primarily based over at the city hospital now um, you will find asthmatics who have these pink cards so they get direct admissions to the respiratory assessment unit over there and you may not see them in ED all really um obviously we have a critical care department over at city hospital and these patients may go from rau to um critical care over there um, and, and never set foot to queens rau being the respiratory, being the respiratory assessment unit over yeah. at, at uh, city hospital um obviously we do get asthmatics who either don't have the pink card or unaware of the system or undiagnosed asthmatics or people who actually haven't had these severe exacerbations before presenting an ed here um, now we don't have uh, designated respiratory wards at Queen's so you may get young asthmatics on general medical wards mm. um, either on AMU and I know we're going to talk about sort of uh, when these patients are ready for di- uh, discharge as well mm. um, but I think as I, as I say it's just recognising which ones need to go straight to intensive care here mm. uh, rather than, uh, and sort of cut out the middle man as it were Mm. And if you're the, um, you know, the F1 on a ward, on an admissions ward, seeing such a patient, mm. uh, getting your senior involved early doors, yeah, you know, if you are at all concerned that your patient with asthma is deteriorating. It's being familiar with those markers of, of life-threatening and, and near-fatal asthma. Um, just to sort of, if you need it, give you that um, mm. leverage to, to get your senior input early, get your anaesthetic team there and consider the next level of care. Um, sorry, what I didn't mention, which didn't answer the question earlier, was what other treatments we might institute in the uh, more sort of uh, life-threatening and near-fatal cases, and as I say, maybe started in, in ED or even AMU before they get to intensive care, things like um, IV salbutamol, IV adrenaline, these are the other medications that Dom was mentioned mm. that you can give uh, intravenously um, to, to manage your more... Uh, magnesium sulfate as well a bit yeah, of a are we sure bit. are we not, not yeah, so much yeah. Perhaps, but a lot of people will use it in yeah. so that's your sort of um, correlation with your your management of your chronic asthmatics mm. who have uh, either inhaled or oral theophylin um, they uh, they may have intravenous aminophilin when they come into hospital as well Okay, so it's moving on from a nebulizer inhaled oral uh, administration route onto IV route yeah. as, as, as you're moving on okay Right then, uh, I think we've already sort of covered really. Anything else on, on when to involve high level care, Charlie? I think we've, we've 
probably covered it all, haven't yeah, we? Yeah, I think it's the, the main thing to look out for is the CO2. CO2, CO2, patient, CO2, yeah. The, the normal to high CO2. Excellent. Um, and so then we've got our patient um, in ED or in the wards. Um, so shall we look at ED first, Dom? Um, they've had a, you know, a bit of treatment nebulizers. They're saying, I'm feeling okay. When do we start thinking about whether a patient can go home? I think uh, it's important to take in the, the wider picture. Mm. If you're, you're on your night shift, your patient has been uh, feeling unwell, using their inhaler throughout the day, getting no improvement, and they've needed a concerted effort to try and pick them back up, then those patients are going to need a, a more prolonged stay. You're going to need a, a period of observation that's outside the remit of, of ED. Um, so I, I would say that the, the, the starting point is important. Um, you need to make sure that um, you know anybody with the more severe effects of asthma, um, even if they've improved, if they were ca categorised in the more um, acute severe, um, then then you're going to be a bit more cautious. And any any other category above that, then then they're certainly not going home from from ED, mm. um, um, regardless of any external pressures you're you're admitting that patient. Um, mm. uh, possibly to, as Charlie's been discussing, that, that higher end level of care. Mm. So it's more your stable asthmatic that's come in as a kind of a short duration, short period of exacerbation that's um, had a, a good starting point with their, their peak flow. So it's certainly above 50%, um, certainly up towards that 75% marker. Um, and clinically to look at them, you know, they're, they're, they're not um, showing signs of that, that higher respiratory workload their respiratory rate is can be elevated but more kind of um, upper ends of normal kind of just tipping over the, the normal ones yeah you're wanting to have seen their, their saturations probably mm. higher end um, upper end of uh, kind of 94 95 percent and then improving with treatment certainly it's not not needing a concerted effort to, mm. to get them up to their normal values as, as I said before, if it's taking that, that, that really concerted effort to, to um, improve their condition, then you, you're going to be worried that um, what happens when the effects of that wear off. So you, you, you're more uh, less severe exacerbation, um, just slightly abnormal physiological triggers that are easily reversible mm. um, and that settle and continue to have a a period within the department where, mm. where they remain settled so mm. um, you you want to see at least um, you know, with a short a acting uh, treatment as I discussed earlier you want them to, to make sure that they've had a good hour mm. of treatment that mm. they've remained settled the saturations have remained normal limits the respiratory rate settled mm. and you've ruled out some of those more other serious conditions you know you mm. want to have investigated appropriately mm. um, have you identified what the exacerbation is what the cause is you know, if you're pretty certain on, on why they've um, become more of an unstable patient compared to their normal stable condition, um, and you've got, uh, you know, confidence in your in your diagnosis of, of that, then then you can uh, focus your treatment. So, so if you've got, you know, um, sniffing cats with the, around <laughs> with the neighbours, uh, and, that, and that was the main uh, cause of those exacerbation, and they remain settled after treatment, then all good and well. If there's an underlying infective process um, and they're well otherwise, no other kind of comorbidities, and you can treat that with um, oral antibiotics mm. um, 
and perhaps a, a short course of oral steroids, mm. then again you're, you're getting more reassured. You mm. need to be thinking about the, the safety netting of your patient as well. Mm. So is this a, a young student who's going back to uh, shared digs, they can kind of have mates who are clued up on their condition or are they kind of living a alone in a, a lonely room in in, uh, in halls and they don't really know anybody else or there's mm. nobody else that can look out for them and um, they're not really sure of uh, you know areas to get help from within Nottingham then you might be a little bit more concerned but if there's a good support network there they're clued mm. up they know the signs um, of further deterioration mm. and you're happy with your diagnosis and, and why the uh, exacerbation's been caused mm. then you're going to be a, a lot more comfortable with that as a discharge mm. I think if you're not sure something we've uh, we've mentioned uh, previously is, is to, to seek that senior support mm. uh, run it by your registrar or consultant um, some some of the more uh, senior AMPs are more more than happy to give advice with with regards to this. Mm. And failing that, the respiratory unit, you know, you can always give them a ring. Um, they're a very experienced team over over at City Hospital, and always um, happy to give advice. Um, so if you if you're just not sure, um, then then seek that advice as mm. appropriate. And uh, and probably uh, as we still see asthma does kill people, you're gonna. You need to be acting more on that uh, that cautionary side, mm. um, especially if you're not not confident in your your yeah. ability to kind of diagnose what's going mm. off. Certainly, I think my threshold is is, is quite low. I think, and um, um, I'd sooner a period of observation that's uneventful rather than run the risk of my patient's health. I think, and it's you know, a sensible adult to adult conversation can take place, can't it? Yeah, definitely, um, and as I said, if you've got those. Uh, Physical, physiological triggers are settling. You've got an, a, mm. a peak flow that's returned back to a, mm. a, a near normal rate. They've not required any treatment mm. uh, for some time, and these are the patients that uh, that you can have that chat with. That, mm. uh, that you can uh, give give the advice, ensure the safety netting's there, and, uh, and I'm sure they're more than happy to to leave A and E. Yeah, I mean, I, I think about the, the two E's when it comes to a patient's breathing. So what, what's their effort and how effective is it? And you want a, a easy effort for maximum effectiveness. I think once you've got that, you can be a bit more reassured. Um, my own sort of tidbit from my own point of view, I think, bearing in mind sometimes your patient can have been on a trolley or sat down for a good while with their getting their observations, saturating absolutely fine. I sometimes find, so shall we have get up and have a bit of a, a wander and you wander around the department and then, you know, if they're still maintaining good sats, that's a bit more reassuring, If but then if they're dropping on minimum exertion, just walking around, that gives you a bit of a, you know, a heads up and reminds you about the, the dynamic process of asthma. Absolutely. Um, so Charlie, from a, from a ward-based point of view then, so uh, yeah, this so is very ED focused uh, for yourself on the ward when you've seen a patient who's been admitted with exacerbation of asthma, so what are you looking for on discharge? Yeah, so thinking about even the sort of moderate asthmas that get admitted, anyone, as Jamie said, who has dropping sacks on, sacks on exertion, um, anyone who's needed prolonged therapy, as Don says, much more uh, treatment in A&E who's brought themselves either bed on a AMU, mm. um, or even considering the patients here who have been in intensive care and subsequently been stepped down the ward. Um, I think essentially the criteria we're looking for are the same. So what you want to see is, is a progressive improvement in their peak flow. You want them to be returning 
back to near normal and actually a near normal uh, peak flow throughout the day as well so recognizing that dip in the evening when asthma seems to get worse mm. um, you want to see that they're actually still able to maintain a, a decent peak flow at that time so you're going to be keeping them at least for a 24-hour period of observation once you think they're better just to check that that improvement is, uh, continues um, other things obviously you'll need to ensure is that if they've been on oxygen uh, therapy during admission that they're actually okay off oxygen and generally speaking they should be observed for 12 to 24 hours off oxygen as well so again if they've come off one morning you may not be looking at discharge until the next day mm. same goes for nebulizers really you find that people are on uh, QDS four times a day nebulizers um, salbutamol and maybe even ibotropine as well what you want to see is that patients can be managed off this they're not then requiring PRN nebulizers um, and again you want to observe that for, for 24 hours I would think patients don't always have nebulizers at home so in theory they should not be requiring them at all at the point of discharge um, even the ones that aren't on the nebulizers you just want to ensure that they're not getting through a, a ventolin inhaler a day um, that you're actually uh, on the road to recovery mm. that your treatment's appropriate Mm. And I think it's just worth considering what treatment you do send them home on. So mm. if they're going home on uh, antibiotics and steroids or, or even just steroids, consider a reduction regime, a reducing regime of those mm. steroids just to, to um, taper their symptoms basically as mm. well. And be happy with the level of, of sort of follow-up that that patient's going to get either through the GP or... or you know in specialist respiratory clinic as well yeah i mean community care for asthmatics obviously it's, it's huge because the majority of asthmatics are mm. managed in the community so respiratory nurse specialists work mm. through general practices um, uh, and surgeries throughout the country so um they're a great liaison um often people as, as we've mentioned have contacts with respiratory units within hospital and certainly those known to specialist care um may have appointments booked I think you've got to consider as well though that patients who have uh, those life-threatening or near-fatal symptoms who've required an ITU admission, if they're not known to specialist services, they certainly should be by this point. Mm. That was the Take Orally Asthma podcast. Be sure to look out for more podcasts coming from us in the near future. In the meanwhile, you can find links to the guidelines mentioned within this episode on both our Twitter and Facebook pages, where you can also contact us if you have any requests for other topics to cover. For information on education and research opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can check out NUH Dream on both Twitter and Facebook.